Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Toffee Web Podcast. The Roby. Good chase here for Coleman, who gets to it. Oh, he scored! An incredible strike from Seamus Coleman! Well, in big games, you need big players. And Seamus Coleman has delivered there. And it could well lift them out of the drop zone this afternoon. It's finished here at Goodison Park. Everton 1, Leeds United 0. Hello Blues and welcome to the Toffee Web Podcast, the weekly audio offering from the longest running Everton website that's coming to you in the wake of Sean Dyche's second successive victory at Goodison Park, another 1-0 triumph, this time going where Frank Lampard proved unable to this season by winning a crucial relegation six-pointer against Leeds. It lifts the Toffees out of the relegation zone for the first time since that horrible 4-1 defeat to Brighton and takes us a step closer to safety, although some of the results around us this past week and have kept things very tight at the bottom of the Premier League. We'll discuss the overall team display and some individual performances, look ahead to another home game this coming weekend against Aston Villa, and offer our thoughts on Everton's prospects of beating the drop based on what we've seen so far from Mr. Deitch. By we, I mean myself, Lyndon Lloyd, Al Bretland, Andy Howard, and I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast for the first time, Roger Armstrong. Roger is, of course, a podcaster in his own right. He hosted his own show, The Blue Half, during the pandemic lockdown, interviewing fellow Evertonians, and as I'm sure most of you know, presents the Everton Business Matters podcast with Paul the Esk and John Blaine. Roger, it's great to have you on. Uh, first off, how the devil are you, and how are you feeling after Saturday's win over Leeds? Um, oh, thanks, Lyndon. Yeah, great to great to join you. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. I'm feeling a lot better after the win against Leeds. I had a slightly um, awkward moment in that I was in a, <clears throat> I, I was at a let's call it a religious event, 
on Saturday afternoon, uh, which saw me having to turn off my telephone at the exact moment I was greeted with the buzz from flash scores that we'd scored and taken the lead. Um, and therefore, it was until quarter to six, I had to wait until the um, finding out that that had not only had the goal stood, because very annoyingly on flash scores, sometimes it buzzes and then buzzes with a uh, VAR. So, yeah, what a, it was a great result and much needed. Bloody hell, who'd have thought Southampton would win at Chelsea and Bournemouth would, mm. would win at Wolves? And we haven't made up any ground on those guys. Um, a bit unfortunate, but absolutely vital. Um, vital three points. Absolutely. Uh, Al, you were there. You popped up again on some of the, the crowd shots on the TV feed. Um, <laughs> how, how did you see it? How are you feeling about it? Yeah, so it was really good. And I think what we've said on, on the podcast previously that I said that I was, I felt most positive about Sean Dyche being the manager and sort of his plan and his setup. And I think that's what got us the win on Saturday because I don't think it was, it was far from a polished performance. I thought the players lacked a bit of composure um, just with their passing. And I think really what summed that up was when Decore was played in by, by Alice Sims and he just lost his feet. I think that um, it was. You know, I don't think it was a nervy performance. I, I just think it showed that we do maybe maybe lack the quality of some of the teams and maybe summed up why we are where we are. But I think, as I say, because of the, the way the manager sets the team up, I think he sort of gets the best out of everybody. Um, and I like the fact that he, he you know, I, I actually said differently on the podcast last week, but I'm glad that he's sort of sticking with the same formation because I, I do just think it helps everyone particularly the the midfield who maybe aren't the best passes of the ball um so I think that does it helps everybody on the pitch really um and as I say I think you know while the composure maybe wasn't there I think that you know it, I compared it to a sort of a performance from the David Moyes era that even when Everton aren't at their best they're still always in the game and you feel like they can break on the opponents and and that's exactly what happened it was a great ball down the down the wing and you know I'm sure you know I know there's been a debate about whether Coleman meant it um, I'm <laughs> certain he did I think he was I think he was having a shot but probably 99% sure it wasn't going to go in I think he was just trying to give the goalkeeper something to do or maybe to get the goalkeeper to palm it out or maybe to hit the post just anything but he's hit it so well, and Melier's position is terrible, really, isn't it, for where it is? Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, when when you're down at the bottom, you can have a lot of bad luck, I think. You know, own goals, mishaps, like almost the goal against at home to Brighton, where I think Tarkovsky falls over Pickford, Mikalenko slides into the goal. Um, but on the flip side, you know, if you're going to stay up, you need good luck as well. And I feel like... We got the goal when we needed to get it. And, you know, Coleman has admitted that he could have that shot another 30 times and probably wouldn't yeah. hit it as sweet. But the time that we needed that goal to get the three points is when it got in. So, you know, I don't personally believe in, like, fate or anything like that. But the fact that that's gone in has just given me a little boost that, you know, like, you know, that we've made positive changes in the dugout. And now that is, you know, creating its own good fortune. Um, so... You know, I came away not as buoyed as I was after the Arsenal game because I thought the Arsenal game was just a really, really good, solid performance of, of, of genuine quality. Um, whereas, yeah, Leeds, we had to grind it out a bit. But I think that is the difference, you, you know, you make when you've got Sean Dyche on the touchline. You will, those games where the opposition are quite poor, 
as we've seen the previous sort of five games that we've lost were against our relegation rivals where it has been a flip of a coin. I think Sean Dyche will get us more more points on the board when the performances are lacking as it was. It's worth saying that Southampton and Bournemouth also won 1-0, you know? <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. 1-0. You know, it does everything, but um, yeah. the ability to keep a clean sheet is is a fantastic platform on which to build. I just I just hope we can keep more of them. <laughs> Much like uh, Rogers uh, Saturday afternoon, um, I had a bit of a strange moment when the goal went in. I was doing some uh, painting and decorating upstairs here, and I was painting <laughs> a ceiling, which is difficult enough at the yes. best of times. And you're trying to listen to Everton leads whilst painting a ceiling. Um, <laughs> And needless to say, there were all sorts of gaps when I actually looked up at full time and realised what I hadn't done. But anyway, at the moment the goal, the goal went in, uh, my, my better half actually switched on a hoover uh, in the next door. And I couldn't hear anything for about three minutes. And all you could hear is this kind of very... <laughs> and then all of a sudden you heard the commentator's tones just rise a little bit. And I allowed myself to dream that that little rise in tone was an Everton goal. And I kind of rushed over to my phone and there it was, the alert on my phone. And so I had to re- rewind and, and they were saying this outrageous strike from an angle. And I was thinking, OK, what does that look like? Um, and I, I had no idea it would be anything that dramatic. But um, it, it reminded me, the, the overall feel of, of, of experiencing that game reminded me I think of the Chelsea game from the back end of last season when we were winning 1-0 in what felt like, well, it was at that point, wasn't it? But it felt like a Mm -hmm. must-win game. And you find yourself pacing and you find yourself doing things that you wouldn't normally do, um, uh, just almost to try and get away from the football. Um, I I could have easily done without that last 10 minutes. Um, 20 minutes. Well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It had that feel to it again. and, but much like El was just saying, you know, we are, it's already clear that we're going to be in games now. I mean, we, we went through a period, let's be honest, we went through a period of the last month of Lampard's tenure, really, of some games we weren't even in them, were we? We, we, we weren't part of the game from a, from a competitive point of view. Where now I think we're going to have that feeling of being in games, being in games more. And that's already what I can see. Um, and we stayed in that, well, I think we stayed in that when Leeds were so poor. But um, ha- defending well and defending as a structure kept it nil-nil. And then we've just got to find, we won't find many moments like that between now and 2050, probably. But we have to find <laughs> those odd moments that turn one point into three. Um, and, I, and I think even though everybody else won, and at the time I was thinking, oh, no, oh, no, they're winning too. But actually, if you look at the table and who else it brings in, yes, exactly. The, it, it might not be a bad thing, you know, yeah. because if we are thinking that three teams are just going to fall and everybody else is going to be okay, I think I think we're in dreamland. But actually, the more teams you can bring into this, I mean, if we go and beat Villa Saturday, for example, they're not safe, yeah. you know, and all of a sudden that can play on their minds, you know. And I think the, the more in this, the merrier. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, there's obviously some debate about whether they, uh, the club should be putting the opposition scores on the screen during the game. Um, <laughs> watching it on the um, 
on the feed over in the US, they have the scores rotating in the top right-hand corner. And I, I, I confess that I spent most of the last 25 minutes just watching that every time the opposition scores would flip round and thinking, oh my God, because surely Chelsea are going to score or Wolves are going to score any minute now. But um, I, I agree that sort of with you, Andy, that in, the, in retrospect and having looked at it, it does keep lots more teams down there uh, with us. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we've all been talking about this, these sort of five, six wins that we need or the, at what seven, eight that it was before these last two. And if we just keep to, to that plan, we're going to be okay regardless of results around us because you know all, there's only so many points to go around and teams will be taking points off each other. So I think that as long as we stick to what we're doing and aim for that particular target, we're going to be fine. Um, and in that respect... Um, you know, I, I mean, I posted on Twitter that I was sort of apprehensive about the Leeds game rather than um, sort of overly, overly concerned. And it's interesting listening to some of the other podcasts and, and sort of seeing the uh, the general discussion on social media leading up to the Leeds game. There was a lot of pessimism that came out of the Anfield derby, and, and rightly so. I mean, we've seen this this team sort of fall apart after winning results under under Frank Lampard, you know, earlier in the season and gone long stretches without winning. And so with that form behind us, I, I don't think you can blame anyone for being slightly pessimistic about this team's chances of sort of mounting a run of get, and getting a sequence of results. But um, I think that I'm far more, was far more confident about Deitch being able to solidify us, um, shore things up at the back. And, and as you say, El, just keep us in games. And that is going to be the key to us because with, with us, with, with so few goals, in the team, you just have to be in the game, and a moment like Seamus Coleman um, can win it, or a moment from a corner like uh, James Tarkovsky against Arsenal. That's all you need, as long as you're not shipping at the other end. So, yeah, I couldn't escape the feeling that uh, that we won't play many more teams as inept as Leeds were on the day. Now, obviously, lots lot of that has to do with the way that we played um, and the way that we are playing under Deitch as opposed to Lampard, where we're far less open. Uh, players are have their instructions to double up on wingers in a way that Lampard never did. Um, and I think that's going to be the the really important thing. So, yes, it was absolutely crucial that we won when you look at where we would be if we hadn't picked up three points. Um, but I'm feeling much more confident now that we're going to get where we need to go um, under this manager compared to the last one. Um, we can talk about um, some of the individual performances I think you just saw the benefit of, of Coleman's experience, both at the back and going forward. He kept um, Gnanto in his pocket um, in the same way that he shut down um, Arsenal's most uh, uh, important players on that side of the field. Um, and so I think having having Coleman there, he's not going to be able to perform at that level every week, obviously. But I think we definitely saw the, uh, the benefit of the experience both there and in, in that goal. I think having been around as long as he could, that, that's what enabled him to take that shot and have the confidence that uh, it was it was going to go in. But uh, uh, Roger, what, what did you make of the starting 11, uh, particularly around the, the striker situation? Uh, we've got obviously got Calvert-Lewin out. Uh, he went for Mope this time over Alice Sims. How, what did you make of that decision? <clears throat> it's interesting. I think we're two different teams. You know, I think we're a different team at Goodison Park and a different team away from home. You know, our, our, our record on the road. Uh, okay. Dyche has only had one go and that was at Anfield. But, you know, we're a dreadful team away from home. Um, and at home, we seem to have the confidence. The fans are playing a huge part in that, no doubt. Um, 
my, my, my other concern, I, I've heard what you said about, you know, staying in games. It's very important to stay in games and down at the bottom. Um, <clears throat> a, a test for this team is going to be um, if we concede a goal first, if we concede the first goal and what happens to us. Yes. Um, I was happy with the lineup. You know, Seamus Coleman at Goodison is a different player. Um, I, I hear the argument for Godfrey over Mikolenko, but Godfrey, I don't know, he scares me a little bit because he can cavort forward and I don't think that suits Daish's, uh game plan at all. Mm-hmm. I thought Mope was an interesting selection, especially after what he'd said in the week at the press conference, uh, Daish, because I didn't really understand it when he said that... Um, you know, all this he was present in the room for the transfer window and everyone was on the phone, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no, there are no Premier League-ready strikers available and we didn't want a development player because Simsy is a development player. Mm. And I thought that was, that was quite an extraordinary statement because he then, he's therefore saying he went into the Merseyside derby with a development striker up front. What on earth did that do for Neil Mopé's confidence if he can't get a game mm. ahead of Sims? Probably right to try Mopé. I didn't see the entire game. I've seen most of the highlights and Mopé seemed to me not to really be uh, anticipating crosses as you would have wanted. Um, you know, McNeil was getting good balls into the into the box quite early and, and perhaps some of those early crosses and the quality of those crosses caused Melier to come off his line for the, for the goal. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, Mopé, a disappointment. The midfield three you would expect to go unchanged, you know, Dekure and... Um, uh, Onana uh, and and Ghana played absolutely fine uh, again, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. Although still a little slow in possession, still a little timid. Um, so I, I think he got the setup right. And frankly, all we care about is results now, isn't it? I mean, it really doesn't matter how. It doesn't matter whether it's off the crossbar on the keeper's head because that could win you a league title, as it might have done for Arsenal. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's got very few options at the top of the pitch. What on earth is he going to do? I don't know. I'm, Damari Gray, is he carrying a knock? I don't know. Didn't come on as a sub. You might have thought he would do that to stretch the game when we were, when we, or to have pace on the, on the break when we were leading. I think the most encouraging thing really was that having scored, there didn't seem to be any moments of absolute uh, fear. We weren't manning the barricades for the last 20 minutes as, as I think we might have done under Lampard. Um, so all in all, it, you know, it's the right result and that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. It was the same against Arsenal, wasn't it? Yep. You'd expect Arsenal to really, really push and it to be like the animo in there. But we we seem to be able to keep a team at arm's length. Yep. Um, which, make, which makes, as your point, you know, right, quite rightly says, like, which makes the first goal in games at the moment for us huge, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, if there's going to be a, a goal. I thought Leeds had so much pace and whilst they're, they're really rubbish at the back, that's really no good to us because we don't have many goals in the team. And I was disappointed, not disappointed, um, I was surprised that Leeds, you know, didn't run at us more and didn't tackle harder in midfield. You know, the two Americans, I expected, there was a, obviously a bit of a fracas, wasn't there, with um, um, with uh, McNeil. Um, mm. But I thought they'd be tougher in midfield and I thought they'd hit us on the pace. I mean, I think Nonto's a really, really exciting player. Didn't get a look in. Seamus marked him out of the game, so... I'm not sure whether Villa will come on to Villa, but you know Villa have got some pace. Watkins is very dangerous in behind, and our centre backs aren't the quickest. So mm, that that that'll be a test. Next Saturday is a is a real test. Back to back wins in this division makes such a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important as well that we've got Villa so soon after the Leeds game at home at 3 p.m. on a Saturday. I think it it just helps with that momentum. And as you said, Lyndon, people went into the Leeds game quite pessimistic. Whereas I feel like we'll go into the game on Saturday, sort of just carrying on where we left off. And 
you know, I think Villa will be a harder test, as you say, Roger. And I think that's where, you know, it could be that we do concede first and it will be really interesting to see how the how the team reacts and really key really uh for for the, for the rest of the season to see what what the players are about under Deitch. but you know as you mentioned Lyndon, the scoreboard going up <laughs> there was an audible <laughs> reaction to it and it was as Leeds had a had a free kick around the 77 minute mark i think and you know i think previous seasons you know when we've sort of been mid table you sort of it was almost like a bit of a chore to go to the match and a bit of a non-event even when when you were sort of 12th, 11th, 10th. But now that now that it really does mean something in terms of our position, the little things that, that go on in the match actually really are important. And I never realised that before, that that moment that that scoreboard went up, it was the first time I think the scores had been shown. Bournemouth were winning, Southampton were winning. And, you know, it's there's a big narrative around the Everton crowd, you know, whether it's toxicity, whether it's nerviness, whether it's there's an edge on it. And that was just the timing was horrendous. Because <laughs> in the Gladys Street, I, I, I sit in GT2, sort of in between the goal and the corner flag and the board was to my right. And, uh, you know, everybody is, you see the score and you are shocked and you turn to the fella next to you and you go, oh, and then you see a free kick. You've seen how Everton have performed against teams down at the bottom. And it does, and it, it's just, to me, it just magnified the fact that every moment counts. Every decision in a season counts. And it's it's the same for going back to the January transfer window. I sound like a broken record, but Dwight McNeil, some of the balls he put in, some of them were terrible. Some of them mm-hmm. were perfect for number nine, of you know, Dominic Calvert-Lewin or a new striker. Whereas maybe they weren't perfect for Neil Morpe because he doesn't make those same runs. And, you know, we could be talking about a three or four nil victory if we'd have made those signings. And it's it's the same for Alex Awobi as well. Out on the right, he's pretty anonymous. He came in into the middle of the pitch um, to try and sort of dictate the play in the centre. And it was just night and day in terms of the the efficiency that he showed in terms of getting on the ball and making something happen. So again, it's... You know, we're short of wingers and, you know, who's to say we, we you know, Iwobi might be a right winger under Deitch regardless of who we sign. You know, he might not play a number 10 or that sort of creativity, but with the three in midfield, you know, you would like to think that Iwobi can get in there and it's another symptom of not getting that business done. Um, because I thought, I thought McNeil, he is quite inconsistent with his deliveries, but I thought he was really good at just being really direct and getting the ball in. And, I, you know, I don't know if that, if he wasn't doing that because of the instruction from Lampard and now he is being told that, or whether it's just he's got a bit more confidence. But I thought some of the balls he put in were really good. And something else I'll add is that Everton have a genuine weapon now that I've noticed. Um, Tarkovsky scored against Arsenal. He hit the post against Liverpool and he had another header save from a corner. One, Mm -hmm. Dwight McNeil's corners have all been really consistent and good. But two, that's that's a weapon to utilise now that Sean Dyche has clearly, you know, seen the, you know, we've got a lot. I noticed that Leeds were quite a small team in terms of height. Everton have got, you know, quite a lot of big lads and, you know, Mina and Calvert-Lewin to come back. So far, we've played Arsenal, Liverpool and Leeds. None of them have had an answer to that corner. Um, mm. And I think that, you know, as teams get to know what we're about under Dyche, 
you can then start having more pay running in at the front post. You can, you know, as it's a really good weapon to utilize, but then you can mix it up because of that as well. Um, so that that's something really encouraging as well. That you know, we don't have the best eleven players in the world, but Dyke just seen something that go right. We can do this. We can do that. And I think that you know, as of the last three games under him, I've been really encouraged by the fact that you can see there's a there's a plan, there's a way of playing, and there's a way of yeah, we might not create a hundred chances, but when we do get a chance, we'll make sure to take advantage of it and do the best we can. Um, so that's something that just I think bodes really well going forward. Yeah, and just going back to the transfer window, clearly we missed a trick. We didn't, you know, we didn't we didn't sign any players. No small details. But the point point I would make, I'd take us further back in time to you know not getting rid of Frank earlier. Um, because when you look mm. at the ease with which, not ease, but the relative ease with which we've beaten Arsenal and Leeds United, there is no way that that team being coached by Sean Dyche would have lost to Leicester, Brighton, and then subsequently to Wolves and um, to Wolves and Southampton after the World Cup. You know, that, that Southampton game and the Wolves game were six pointers. Both teams were bottom of the league when they came to Goodison. And... Um, you know that that's. I just hope. I just hope we don't pay the price for that because that that's 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 twelve points. There's a twelve point swing there against those mm-hmm. uh, in those two games, um, and it does it does piss you off that that we stuck with Frank for far too long. Um, really, really quite negligent of of those whoever it is that runs our football club. We don't know because they're certainly not <laughs> at the stadium. But you know uh, that was that was just such a. You know we lost twice in a week and shipped seven goals to Bournemouth. And if that doesn't lose your job as Everton manager, then I don't know what should. Yeah, agreed. Just going back to what El was saying as well, and, and also what, what Roger was saying about the crosses in from McNeil. I mean, this is all part of a jigsaw, isn't it? These are, these are Premier League footballers, so you'd hope that the jigsaw wouldn't take too long to come together. But they may not have anticipated a ball from McNeil like that three weeks ago. You know, mm. yeah. Daesh hasn't had these players too long, um, and if if, if the if the plan is, which it should be with McNeil, because that's his again, you get the best out of players. That's his probably his best card to play, isn't it? You 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 get a ball to his left foot and he'll whip it in. Now we weren't playing like that under Lampard at all, so maybe there's a there's a learning there that's happening hopefully as we speak now where the players will gradually know okay Dwight's got the ball on his left foot I'm just going to gamble in the six yard box here. yeah and we you know and, and I know these 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 are highly you know highly performing professionals who maybe should latch onto that a little bit quicker but you know it takes time new manager comes in has so many different ideas and he's just told us he's done five weeks work in, in five days in the first week there's probably a load of information there that they're taking in, or not, and I wouldn't be surprised in 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 a in a few days, if we few games time maybe, that they are a bit more practiced and rehearsed in that style. Um, that's the first thing. And going back to set pieces, we're not a team that makes many chances. We're not a team that scores many goals. And I know set pieces are statistically actually not brilliant for scoring goals, but. I think if you give us a free cross into the box, we've got to we've got to use it, and we haven't used set pieces properly in donkeys, have mm-hmm. we? Um, mm-hmm. in, in both boxes, in either box, really, um, we've been quite poor. But 
I, 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 I'm all for it. I, I know it's not a guaranteed, you know, Hinchcliffe to Ferguson job, but it's, um, it's a really good way for us to have an, a, an effort on goal. And even if the first one doesn't go in, we saw from Arsenal, the Arsenal game, how we built pressure through three or four corners. And I think we've just got to get back to that. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed by it at all. Let's let's have loads of corners and loads of free kicks. Put them in. Put them in there. See what happens. Yeah, well, exactly. I don't. As, as Roger said, I don't care how we win right now. Just that we do stay in the division and then try and you know plan for the future beyond that. But I think the the getting that ball out to McNeil and to the left hand side was a deliberate tactic uh, because we did it frequently. We had Mikalenko going on the overlap. I can't remember the last time he did that under Lampard. Um, he was getting down the left and it, it just seemed to be get try and get a cross in. The minimum you can get is a corner and then you're set up for what, what has become a very powerful, you know, part of our Arsenal. Uh, excuse the pun. We hit, we've scored against Arsenal with one. We hit the post against Liverpool and Melier was forced into a very good save to, to deny Tarkovsky. So that could have been conceivably three set piece goals in three games under Deitch. So yeah, I think I think it was an it was a, a a tactic that that Deitch employed to get the ball out wide and just sling the crosses in. You either get you know get a set piece out of it, or uh, you know something breaks, goes off someone's backside and goes in. You've got a an, an own goal. I mean, you know, yeah, what whatever works. And I think just going back to the um, to the way that the team is actually playing, it, it's amazing what having a, an actual plan and an identity about the team does for the way that the, the players actually play. There's a confidence there. Um, and I think you could see that, and I've made this point before, you could see in the games against Brighton in particular and at West Ham that there was just no belief in that team. Uh, there, there wasn't, there was just clearly a buy-in missing into the uh, the manager's instructions. So um, yeah, again, we just, look, we just looked much more organized and uh, much, uh, much better for it. Um, so looking ahead to um, Aston Villa, um, I would imagine that it seems to be the Deitch favors consistency. Um, I think that's probably why you haven't seen uh, Damari Gray to this point. He was actually readied to come on uh, as Seamus Coleman was scoring that goal, and he was told to sit down after the game went in, which I thought was interesting because it looked like he was going to um, get get a chance. Um, and it's it's strange that our top scorer hasn't really featured at all under Deitch. But I think, and again, going back to this approach, just find ways of winning however I think that it's wise for Deitch to stick with what's working. Um, so I wouldn't be—I would be surprised if we saw many changes. Um, obviously, injuries might dictate. It looks like it looks like Onana is going to be okay. But uh, uh, what do we think, L? Any chances? Sorry, any changes to that uh, to that lineup against Villa? It's going to—it's going to be a different challenge for sure. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think what I what I said before about momentum. That for that reason, I would I would keep it the same. Um, yeah. I, I you know I'm. Um, I do think I agree that, you know, Seamus Coleman's not going to be brilliant every week. He's not going to put in the same performance every week. But I just think while that confidence has been regained after the derby with a, with a you know, a hard-fought win, I, did, it, I feel like it's literally just like I left the ground about, you know, 10 to 5. <laughs> I just wanted to feel like it's 5 to 5 when I go back, you know what I mean? Just, just have it, everything the same because I think it just, it's so important, I think, Especially during the Machere era as well, we've not, you know, if I, if I, if we went round the the group now and said what's the the strongest Everton eleven, you wouldn't probably be able to gauge it. And it's probably only this season that you've that we've got a, a defensive partnership um, that is consistent. Um, 
I think mm-hmm. we've over the last six, seven years, probably yeah, since Martinez, we've lacked relationships on the pitch. They they just haven't been those partnerships, I don't think. Um so I think that's really key under Deitch that we we get that consistency. So, you know, whether it's Mikalenko and McNeil, um, or you know, Coleman and Awobi or that three man central midfield, for me it's just got to stay the same because it's it's almost the players because there's not loads of quality. You almost want them to be a bit robotic in terms of what they do. You know, keep it very simple and basic. You know, Dwight McNeil, get the ball, run at the right back and whip it in. Mikalenko, try and, you know, support him, that sort of thing. Neil Morpay, mm-hmm. make runs to the six-yard box. So, for me, I just think consistency is absolutely key for the running. And, you know, ho- hopefully we're fortunate that we don't have any fresh injuries and that those are injured are, are available. So, that you know, there is a bit of flexibility in that but for, but for me after what I've seen in the first three games I would absolutely be sticking with the formation and and what we've seen so far you know because I think as well on paper you know Gay, Decore and Anana are probably all defensive midfielders or you know at least Anana might be a central midfielder but he has those defensive qualities rather than being like a number 10 or a playmaker but what's quite good about all three of them is they they are versatile enough that and, and disciplined enough as well that you know they do make those forays forward. For example, Decore, while it was quite abysmal what he did when he got into the box, he was still there to make that run, to, to read Ellis Sims' pass. So, you know, I think that's really encouraging. Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Under Lampard, we were saying, God, he's got to change that up, hasn't he? <laughs> and now we're saying, I hope he doesn't change that up. But I, I completely agree, El. I completely agree, because you can now see a plan and you can see a blueprint where I think with with Lampard, I don't, know whether I don't want to play it down play it, you know give I don't want to be overly harsh but it, it looked like doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results didn't it and and this is you can see that this blueprint already works to an extent um so I, I mean like I said uh last week when we were on about the team for for Leeds uh, I I'm really glad he kept the 10 the same um and I think if he can he will um, because that, I mean, if we get a tiny bit of momentum, you know, we're, we're, that might be enough to, to see us over the line with those 10 playing together. Um, I, I, I worked out when Sean Dyche took the job, he had 18 games to go. So effectively, if we went win, loss, win, loss, win, loss, all the way through, we'd end up with 42 points. So he's gone win, loss, win. So we're 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 getting you know and and another result of some kind on Saturday. You'd argue that we're well ahead of schedule. I think there's a debate as to what a representative sample is. I don't want to be the Jonah or the half-empty guy, but anybody who's ever listened to me on Everton would would know that I'm half-empty. I think the test is going to be when things go against us. And I said when Dyche was appointed that the only way I saw us winning games was one nil. If we can get seven or eight one nils, that's great. Um, we don't have enough goals in the team. We've scored more than one twice all season still. Um, and our away performances haven't improved. And we haven't come from behind to win a game, have we? Oh, yes, at Southampton we did. Um, because obviously we scored two there. Um, and we scored three against um, at, at Crystal Palace. But I think um, it's important that there is a clear identity. I agree completely with Elle. Whether we like it or not, whether we like the stylish football... That's not what matters. What matters is results. And, and the fans will get behind a team that they can see what they're trying to do. 
with Frank, I don't think anybody could see what on earth he or the players were trying to do. And the players didn't understand it either. The real test is if in Ollie Watkins bangs one in in the seventh minute at the Gladys Street end and how we react to that. That 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 will be the test. And and somebody is going to take the lead against this team. It's not going to carry on like this for the rest. Uh, and there are tough games ahead and there are better teams we'll play against. But, you know, the signs are good. Um, not quite a representative sample for me, but... Yeah, the signs are the signs are positive that we've managed to get six points out of nine. Yeah, the one thing that uh, I've been sort of trying to convince myself of, I suppose, is the fact that you know Dutch has only been here a short while, and we're not really seeing a because we don't really have the personnel for it, but we're not seeing the sort of lump it forward kind of uh, agricultural football that I think many of us were expecting. Uh, there is. Um, quite a bit of, uh, of movement of the ball through midfield. Uh, we're finding ways of getting that ball forward and in ways that we perhaps struggled to, to do so under Lampard. And I'm, I'm sort of hoping that we'll see more of an evolution of that as the confidence in, of, of the players, um, the confidence of players increases. I mean, it's it, this, this core group did produce some really wonderful goals against Crystal Palace not too long ago. Now, granted, Dominic Calvert-Lewin scored one of those. And I, I think we can maybe hope to see him at some point uh, between now and the end of the season. But uh, I think that, uh, that that we're playing better football than perhaps many of us expected. And yes, it was largely poor for, for, for the most part against Leeds. Uh, but I think most of that just came down to the poor, the poor delivery and poor decision-making in the final third, which has obviously been a problem for a while now, regardless of, of who's been manager. But I'm, I'm, if, if that can improve, then I think we're going to have, um, we're, we're going to make more chances um, and my, my final thing I'd say on Neil Mope was it was it was an interesting performance because I think he he definitely put a shift in and he was there to sort of put himself about and obviously the the they lost one of their centre backs from from a, a challenge that he was in um, you know just sort of making a nuisance of himself and I think if you look back on the uh, if you look back on on Seamus's goal it's actually Mope who holds off two defenders to then lay it back to just a gay who then gives it to Iwobi to knock it down the line. So I think he's playing his part, but uh, Alan Shearer's analysis on match of the day was spot on, is that he needs to have more appetite in front of goal. There needs to be more of a killer instinct. And I think, again, hopefully that will come with more games and him feeling a bit more, um, a bit more settled. So fingers crossed on that score. But uh, different challenge on Saturday, definitely. ToffeeWeb.com is the longest-running Everton website with an archive of more than 35,000 articles. This is the Toffee Web Podcast. Uh, we'll move on to um, our weekly question, which this time is inspired by Seamus Coleman's wonder goal on Saturday. Uh, I think we'll have to say, apart from Seamus's goal, because it would surely be up there at the top for most people, it would certainly be mine. But uh, what is your most surprising Everton moment? Uh, it'll probably be a goal, but it doesn't have to be. Well, I've got I've got three, if I may, because I was no, thinking about it. Yeah, I can run through them quite quickly. One is um, one is way back in the day in the early nineties. I was at Old Trafford watching Everton play, and I couldn't get an Everton ticket. And I was in with United fans without my colours on, but they knew I was an Everton fan during the game. And um, it, it was still nil-nil and there were maybe 15 minutes to go when Mark Hughes um, was holding the ball up in front of us. Dave Watson clattered him from behind and I lost my rag 
and and jumped up and accused Mark Hughes of being a cheating diving so and so, which was a very move because I forgot at that moment I was surrounded by Manchester United players, and my bacon was saved somewhat surprisingly by the referee coming over and booking Mark Hughes for diving and giving free kick to Everton, at which point I was allowed to sit down as being somehow some kind of psychic. Um, that was a surprising moment. Um, my second surprising moment was winning the penalty shootout against Man United in 2009 because Everton don't win yeah. penalty shootouts, um, especially when we missed the first one. Um, and that was an iconic moment. Um, I was there with my then um, seven-year-old youngest son and it was an absolutely extraordinary experience to see us win at Wembley. Um, the only time that I've done that with him because obviously we lost the final uh, and he wasn't born in 95. But my other one would be Wayne Rooney's goal against West Ham for the hat-trick mm. from yeah. the halfway. Um, good know, choice. Uh, good Allardyce took some credit for it, but it was great to at least... I mean, I saw Wayne <laughs> score a few goals for Everton, but to see him score a hat-trick at Goodison and made you think what might have been if he just stayed a bit longer. But that was a, that was a wonderful moment. And, and it was a surprise for him to score from there, even though he is Wayne Rooney. Mm. So there's three for the price of one. Good choices. Well, I've also got three. Go on then. Um, and none of them match yours, which is great. Um, uh, my f- uh, I mean, two of these are goals because I, what got me thinking about this question was obviously Seamus's um, strike. Uh, and what I tried to imagine and, and remember when I've been, uh, what are these both? No, one's at Goodison Park and one was away from home, um, was that moment when the ball goes in and, and there's almost a second of shock and then everybody celebrates. It's not like when you can see it laid back across the six-yard box and you're almost celebrating before it gets there. It's that moment of, oh, what? Yes! That, that, kind of, that kind of moment. And I remember um, Manny Fernandez, that goal at the Gladys Street against Manchester United, yes, yeah. where on that angle, and I was almost, I was, I was in line with him. So I, I could kind of see that, that, that kind of it go into the near post. And for the for the I mean Everton players didn't do that, you know. Um, and for a moment, your brain is just scrambled in like, what's just happened there? Um, incredible. Um, I've I've not seen many shots kind of go in from that kind of that kind of angle. That was a moment. Um, and I was right behind. And I even though I was right behind it, um, Matthew Jackson's goal at Ashton Gate mm-hmm. in the '95 FA Cup run. When I mean, let's be honest. I, I, I don't. I don't know whether anybody's going to mention the one that Phil Jagielka scored at Anfield, but it was a bit like that in that he's just hit it yeah. with his wrong foot, I believe. <laughs> I think it was his left foot. Um, and again, you've you've seen who it is. You've seen what he's done, and you're thinking that's never right. And 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 you know, if it was a computer game, you'd be going, "Well, this is a bit unrealistic, isn't it?" Um, uh, it was an amazing moment. The third. Um, which was more kind of shock in terms of, wow, like how, how on earth would you ever write this? Um, Blackburn Rovers at Goodison, 2006, and a young debutant goalkeeper, Ian Turner, um, takes to the field and he's sent off in six minutes, is it? Yeah. Seven wow. minutes, something like that. And, <laughs> it's an obscure one. and then you realise, what, what do we do now? And then John Ruddy comes on, another young debutant goalkeeper, and the kind of... The shock, and you, you think, "Oh my gosh, that was what, what's." Gonna, and we won that game one nil. Um, but yeah, th- those three for me stood out as as surprising Everton moments. Sometimes Everton really don't surprise you, do they? But um, <laughs> other times they do. Yeah. So for me, it was. I remember uh, Peter Schmeichel going up for a corner for Aston Villa. 
um, sort of, I think, in the early 2000s. And it was just something I'd never seen at a live game before. And it was the fact that it was just, you know, it wasn't a cup game where they needed to score. It was just a standard Premier League fixture. But he's he's gone up and, you know, half volleyed the ball at the back post and Nicholas Alexanderson's on the post and sort of, and it goes in. And then he just runs back to his goal, high-fiving everybody. So that was just a, a surreal moment. And then I think another one was the, the James McFadden goal against Charlton, mm-hmm. where he sort of mm-hmm. boots it up over Magic Bagheera and then volleys it into the bottom corner. That, again, it's it's similar to like the Rooney moments, the Rooney goal against Arsenal. It's just those moments where the goal is just so technically brilliant. It just, you know, takes your breath away. And then probably similar to Roger in terms of you don't see Everton do it a lot. I remember going to the... The League Cup semi-final away at City, the second leg. Um, oh, yeah. Everton, yeah, Raheem Sterling pulled back from behind the yeah, that one. Yeah, when Ross scored the first goal. Yes, yeah, so was, yeah. So it was when when Barkley scored that goal because Everton led two one. And you know, as we say, we those things don't happen for Everton, particularly in my lifetime. So for us to go away to you know one of the the top clubs and and to take the lead to give us a three one lead in a semi-final. Uh, was yeah. just like, wow, this could actually happen. And then obviously it didn't. But <laughs> it was <laughs> for that moment, you know, just ending up on the on the you know, we were up in the gods in the away end and just me and four of my mates just like literally on the floor, just bewildered by what we were what we were seeing that we'd actually taken the lead. That is up there for me. It it, it did genuinely shock me. <laughs> yeah, those are all good. All good things. I mean, I'm not sure I could ever come back, come up with one that was the most surprising. But the first, uh, some of the ones, obvious ones that came to mind were Jagielka's goal at Anfield. Um, yeah. you know, that Pickford, saved by Pickford against Chelsea last season was another one. Um, oh, yes. You're just talking about the goalkeepers there. Um, and that, that Tim Howard scoring that goal against Bel- Bolton. And then the most Everton thing ever is we go, then go on to lose the game. <laughs> But uh, the the one that that sort of first came to to, to mind was when you posed the question, Andy, because I remember on the chat I said to you, "God, my mind's blank." And then this one popped in was the that turnaround we did against Spurs when Pinar scored in the ninetieth, and then we sort of launched that ball forward, and then Velios kind of goes in with a, an overhead kick. I'm not even sure he even makes that much contact with it, and all of a sudden it's in the net and it's two one, and I, I don't think any of us had seen that had seen that coming. Um, so that's the one that, that I'll go with. But again, I don't think I don't think much much tops Seamus's goal on Saturday. I mean, just just the disbelief that oh god, it's gone in, <laughs> unbelievable, and it was perfectly perfectly timed. Well, it's actually right in my eye line. So as I say, where I sit at the other corner, and you're watching him running down with the pass being mm. made, and your eyes do sort of go in the box, like towards the box. And then, as a you know, as you're looking, you see the net, but you see him kick it. But you know, sometimes you vantage point. But there's a brilliant video on Twitter that I shared as well, where because of the reaction times of people and the angle, yes, there is a, yeah. an actual Mexican wave in the Bullens Road because people who are in line <laughs> with it see it go in first. And I've mm. never seen anything like it, but it is literally the people sort of closer to the center circle don't see it until about two seconds after those by the corner flag. It's incredible. Yeah, it was it was a lovely moment, and it's particularly for for Seamus, who unfortunately, you know, the way that things are going, looks like he won't ever get to sort of lift a trophy with our colours on. But uh, it's nice. I think we'll be talking about that goal for for many many years to come, just because it was so extraordinary. 
You're listening to the Toffee Web Podcast. Roger, seeing as uh, we have the host of Everton Business Matters on this week, uh, I wanted to get your take on the current situation with the board. This was the third home game where the director's box was conspicuously empty. Um, I don't recall seeing a specific directive for Saturday's game that the board members had been advised not to attend on safety grounds, but I, su- I suppose we assume that that was the case and will continue to, to, to be so. Um, I've seen some, ba- some debate on social media about the fact that the NS Now campaign is telling the board they're not welcome and then some protesters are lambasting them for not showing up. Uh, where do you stand on this? Do you think they have a duty to be present regardless of the sort of noise around people not wanting them there? But it's just a unique set of circumstances, isn't it? Um, mm. and I think over time the patience and 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 the tipping point has occurred. Whether that was not getting rid of Lampard, or whether that tipping point was the utter nonsense of the transfer window, or the mm-hmm. the ludicrous machinery interview, or, or wherever that tipping point was, sometime between the you know end of the World Cup break and restart. There's been a tipping point, a definite tipping point within the fans, which I think has seen the 27 campaign, um, you know, um, change into morph into the the NS Now campaign, which is very, very widely supported by a whole group of fan groups, supporter groups, podcast producers. Where do I stand personally? I think it's ridiculous that the board members aren't attending a football match. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, I don't believe personally that they have been that there are there have been any serious threats that should prevent them that security could not deal with that prevented them attending which i believe they should attend if they are the board members um but the fact of the matter is that um it hasn't made a blind bit of difference you know the team has run out the music has been played i did hear someone saying on another podcast that there seems to have been more you must behave yourself type safety announcements which is almost like the ghost of the board there putting that message out although I haven't heard too many Operation Goodison exercises. Um, I think that, frankly, they should have started and seen the writing on the wall, and they should have started the process of change by tendering their resignations. I think at least the chairman and the chief executive should have done that. Doesn't have to, that change doesn't have to happen in a trice, you know. They're not going to leave tomorrow and a new board is appointed. We do need some directors. It's a company. We need to have directors in place. But I think if there's some indication and some recognition of responsibility, because fundamentally, the difference is those board members are responsible, right? They've got skin in the game and they're well paid to do a job. They're not doing it very well. They haven't done it very well. The fans have skin in the game, emotional skin in the game, familial skill in the game, skin in the game. It's come down the generations. But the fans pay to go to the game. The board directors don't pay to go to the game. Um, and and the fans go, and I think the fans have been able to um, draw a line between the the protest, if you like, uh, and then a coach welcome, or then going into the ground and supporting and getting behind the team. And in many ways, I think these marches pre-match, we've done two of them, as another one planned for, uh, when I say we, the fan base, I, I'm not putting myself forward as an organiser of such, because I'm too remote from, you know, feet on the ground. But um, those marches, I think, have allowed the fans to, come together and then when it's finished outside the director's entrance to go their separate ways and into their uh, different corners of Goodison Park and get straight behind the team and the manager and everyone from you know quarter past two onwards Um, but in answer to your question I think the board should attend and if they don't feel able to attend they should be resigning their positions and starting that process of change 
which is which is needed. I also think it is a huge slap in the face to two people, to two groups. Well, one group, the fans. I think it's I think it's absolutely contemptible that that they they don't um, wish to come and support the team that they are supposed to be employed by. And I think it is hugely disrespectful to Sean Dyche, who one of them presumably appointed as manager, not to have been there to welcome him. Um, So I think it's a farce, but I don't think it is distracting at all from the efforts. And in many ways, it's providing a greater focus and unity, managers, players and fans together. And it's working. We're getting results. Do you you actually think, conversely, that it actually might be a positive thing on the pitch because it's it, it, it's another distraction in the stadium isn't it we were talking about things happening in the stadium that that isn't the 11 shirts um sorry their non-attendance do you think do i think their attendance would be a distraction uh, yeah well i mean I, I think in principle okay i think the board of a football club should go and watch their team right now this board has gone to anfield to watch everton and, and has been to the london stadium to watch everton but can't go to goodison yeah. Um, and that is their fault. That is not the fans' fault. Okay, that is their fault. That is their responsibility. Um, but I think what we need is focus and focus on the pitch and focus on obtaining results. But, but we need change. And, and I think it is right to keep going with the protests, to keep going with the marches. Um, and I know last season was different, and the, the, the what was then the 27 campaign kind of suspended activities whilst we all got behind the team and we got Frank and the boys over the line and carried them over the line in some cases. Um, but I think it's now at such a ridiculous point that if the board can't go to football matches, what is the point of the board? What is the point of them? And I think it would show a little bit of humility, a little bit of respect and a little bit of self-awareness that they seem to lack in spades, um, you know, to, to just acknowledge that, acknowledge their failings, and step aside with some grace and dignity whilst they still have a chance to do so. I mean, I I, I attended the the coach welcome for you know before the the sit in that was arranged for after the game. I attended the, the yeah. uh, uh, the Southampton game. Sorry, I think it was. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Southampton yeah. game. The the day the the statement uh, came out, I was there for the coach welcome. Uh, went to the game. I've Everton got beat. I stayed for the. For the sitting, then the last two games I've been, uh, I've attended both marches, and I've got to say they've been, you know, I can't see everything at the ground, but from what I've seen, it's been very respectful, and above all, it's been really brilliantly organised. And what I would say is, it is just Evertonians who are passionate about their football club, who want to see the club do better. And for me, you know, I want change because you know the the facts are there, the evidence are there, is that the people in charge now. And not doing a good job, they're failing. You know, if if the team sinks down the league table over six years, something's not right. And I, I noticed that, you know, um, it, it it it's a real positive the march because it's not there's no vitriol. You know, there's obviously we're making our voices heard, but I was so I was buoyed by the fact that I was walking down Speller Lane with you know to my right there would be a, maybe a gentleman in his sixties. And a bit further ahead of me, there was a, a maybe a, a six-year-old on on her father's shoulders. You know, this is a generation thing. You know, Evertonians of a certain age have seen us win stuff. Evertonians like myself, I've got a nine-month-old daughter. If she grows up to like football and is an Evertonian, I don't want her to have the disappointments that I've had in my era. That you know, I started supporting Everton in '96, 
I've basically, well, that was my first game, but it was 95. I've been with them for their longest barren run in history. And at times it's been joyless, but I'm there. But, you know, if I can do something to, you know, there's no God-given right in football. And my daughter may grow up and support Everton and, and not see them win anything for 30 years as well. But if I can see that those running the club and not those running the club at the minute, chances are we don't win silverware under them or have good times. Um, and so for me, that that's where the change needs to come. It's there in black and white. You know, it's nothing personal. You know, I don't know the ball personally, but there's yep. no maliciousness there. It's at the end of the day, for my entire lifetime of sporting Everton, we have not come close to winning anything. Of the six ever present in the Premier League, all the others have played in the Champions League pretty regularly. You know, Tottenham are a Champions League club now. They're one of the European elites, and Everton are miles from that. And so that's where it is for me. It, it, it is a real positive that the march, and, you know, if if other Evertonians organise another march for Villa, you know, as they have, I'll be there. Um, and I think that's why Evertonians feel that. Al, sorry to jump in, but you mentioned your daughter, and and there's um, there's an idea, and and this this campaign um, for the march on Saturday is suggesting that it be led by the next generation, which I think is is quite a is quite a nice move, um, and and that was sort of announced early this evening, um, earlier this evening um, Monday, and uh, almost coincidentally, um, the fan advisory board produced their thirteen pages of answers from the questions, and there were some words there. And there were certainly some questions, but I don't think many of those questions were answered in a satisfactory way, uh, which, which really, you know, brings back to the whole point of, of the of the uh, the NS Now campaign, and um, and the fact that it is a generational thing. You know, I'm a Evertonian because of my dad, and my kids are Evertonians because of me, and that goes down the generations. So, you know, it's right that the next generation step up and and don't have to live thirty years without seeing us at least be competitive. For the love of God. Poor old Roberto, you know, there's like a watershed, isn't there? Poor old Roberto Martinez, 2016. I saw earlier today, it was seven years since uh, today that we beat Bournemouth away 2-1 in the FA Cup on our way to a semi-final with Man United. You referenced the semi-final, the two legs against Man City in that same season. Mashiri walked in the door almost seven years ago and we haven't been anywhere near a semi-final. A couple of quarters under, under Don Carlo and, you know, average points, average league position worse and you know money down the drain um that that's why we're protesting and i think that's a we talked about three games not being a body of evidence but i think seven years is more than sufficient yeah and as you say roger the you know the answers uh, that have come back to the uh, fab you know everton have said that you know the january recruitment the, the recruitment thing is the big thing for me because i just think you know how can you possibly compete if there are gaps in the squad for example and in the answer, it said that, you know, the January transfer window, Everton started making plans for that when the summer window closed. And so for me, as I said about the evidence and things being in black and white, if they had made plans for January at the end of the summer, they've simply failed. You you can't have that long <laughs> and not bring in a striker when your number nine's been injured on and off for 18 months. So that, for me, is just it's there in black and white that, they're, they're failing. It doesn't matter whether they, you know, th- whether they have the best intentions, whether they prepare from September the first. At the end of the day, on February the first, there was no new striker. There was there was no extra winger after Anthony Gordon went. So that's it for me. It's just as you said, Roger. Seven years is a long time, and it's right. You've had your go. You failed. Basically, you failed. 
it's time for somebody else to have a go. And you know, it, mm-hmm. it, there's no magic wand. It's not that if 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 the board is replaced, suddenly Everton are winning leagues and cups. But it's just that the evidence is, as you know, as you said, we've not come close to being competitive. And so that's where I think seven years is a long time in football to not be competitive, which is adding already to what what you know two decades worth of of not being able to be competitive. So that's it for me. It's ju- it's just you've had a go. You've come up short. It's time to go in a different direction now. And it's worse than just incompetence, isn't it? Because as you say, they either uh, they either are incompetent because they've been planning this January transfer window since the summer and failed to achieve it, or they're just simply lying, um, and and they haven't been planning it. Because if they've been planning it, come on, come on, come on, you can find better than Neil Mope if you've been planning to get a backup for Dominic Calvert Lewin. Um, so they're either incompetent or lying or a bit of both and neither is good enough. So, you know, it's time to move on. It's time to make that change. And and the momentum is, you know, unstoppable. I can't see any way back for this board. Certainly not the chairman or the chief executive. We all, of course, we need a, a finance director and there's no doubt that Grant Ingalls can do that job. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, we need um, we need better. We need better from our chairman. We need better from our chief executive and we need we need better because otherwise we will drift down down the leagues and not just down this league but down into the league below sorry to pour cold water on the optimism <laughs> sorry no i mean it's it's reality isn't it <clears throat> it's reality three point saturday would be great wouldn't it absolutely would well it's the, the around us fixtures saturday are a little bit frightening i think it's uh, leeds united at home to southampton and um it's west ham against forest at the same time that's three three o'clock kickoffs just to pick up on a point Andy made earlier that, you know, it's good to drag other teams in. Well, I kind of agree and I kind of don't because the more teams that are dragged in, the more are playing each other. And the more then, you know, two of them are playing, one of them is going to get three points. You know, I'd rather that they, they all lost and they can't. If if there's eight or nine teams in, then at least two of them are playing each other every week. Um, and uh, I don't know. What do we want? Do we want... Do we want Leeds to beat Southampton? What, what do we want in that game? Do we want a draw? Um, and what about yeah. West Ham Forest? West Ham, we want West Ham Dra- to beat Draws Forest. all around, I say. Draws all around. I'd say we want Forest to beat West Ham. And and we probably want Southampton to beat Leeds because I think Southampton are the worst team in the division. But who knows? Unless, and, until they're not. <laughs> I would say let's, let's let Forest beat West Ham and then Forest will be beautifully complacent the week after. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When when we'll be on a high having won at the Emirates and made three wins in a row. <laughs> exactly. There you go. See there's 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 the optimism. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, great chat that fellas. Uh, Roger, it's great to have you on uh, to hear your perspective. Thank you. uh, thanks to El and Andy and of course to everyone for listening. Uh, tune back in next week when we'll review that game against Aston Villa and hopefully we'll be looking back on another victory that really will have us breathing easier regardless of what goes on around us. Uh, Until then, Blues, take care as always and up those toffees. Up those toffees.